With early voting underway in many states, the sheer volume of people showing up at the polls suggests Americans are quite energized for these midterm elections. Are they voting blue or voting red? We'll break down the latest polling data. Plus, for some voters, all other issues pale compared to one, protecting our kids from sexual predators. We discuss the pervasive threat of child grooming and parents fight to eradicate it next on The Midnight Ride. It's Monday, October 24th, 2022, just two weeks until we take back America in these critical midterm elections, and you are listening to the Midnight Ride Podcast with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon. Paul, we call our show the the home for misinformation, disinformation, also known as the truth. You predicted it last week. We were talking about COVID vaccines and some revelations out of the Pfizer CEO. You said we were going to get flagged. Not only did we get flagged, YouTube suspended us. They took down the episode. Well, they sure did. And uh, maybe they've even given you COVID. You sound a little under the weather. <laughs> that big tech is is really rolling out all the stops um, and, and troubling that the same week that they did that, the CDC votes 15 to nothing to recommend that kids as young as four be forced to get vaccines before they COVID vaccines before they go into the schools. I, I, maybe I'm, for the YouTube folks, maybe I'm, I'm wrong on that age, but basically K through 12, that, that could be a recommendation if your state agrees. So that's another thing we'll be tracking, but we don't want to talk COVID because we want our YouTube audience to hear this episode. Well, we certainly do. So we're just going to have to stay away from that at this point. But in honor of YouTube and making sure that the episode stays up, I really hope that you're following recommendations in your parents' basement and that you're wearing five masks, you've locked the door, you have a air filter machine, and uh, you're not allowed outside or to see anybody for two weeks, Connor, um, whether you have COVID or not, because you can never be too safe. We laugh at this, but um, one of the reasons I'm a little under the weather is I, I did some traveling to a colder part of the, the country last week, a blue state, and it's still there. The Covidians are still wearing their masks. They're still terrified about this. And I'm not just talking about people at risk. I mean, the at-risk populations, you understand, even though with the airborne virus, the efficacy of a cloth mask is is very much in question. But young people, I mean, people in their 20s are, are doing this. And it's it's just like, dude, did you not get the memo? I mean, there's a lot of information out there. But this uh, COVID thing, it really created a line, you know, between the COVIDians and, and us. And um, we've said many times that this is a political issue. It's an us versus them kind of thing. And you can see it when you walk around an airport or, you know, the city streets in, in New York, Boston, Philadelphia, uh, a lot of, the, you know, a lot of these Eastern places. It is. You can really see the difference. And I, I think it boils down to almost two types of people. You've got people that are really impacted by propaganda that sort of live in fear of a lot of different things. And I think COVID is a manifestation of that. You know, fear is very powerful when you're using it to influence populations. And I think COVID, that was done with a certain group of people. And you can see that they're very impacted by that, being scared of a lot of different things. And then you've got the other side of folks that enjoy life, 
take the bull by the horns, understand risk, uh, and uh, like to succeed. And that's sort of the difference there. So you can see there, you can really see those that that spend their lives in fear and those that don't just by looking at the COVIDians. Yeah. Also understanding too, that this is a, our experience here on earth is a temporary one, right? And at the end of the, at the end of the road here, there's, there's something much greater waiting on the other side. So religious folks who always understood their own mortality, they are less vulnerable to that propaganda, but that is part of the divide is religion, culture, and it also goes across socioeconomic lines. It, it's the elites that tend to be more uh, susceptible to this. And while we're on the topic of this line and this these two groups of people, I think we should start our show today by talking about the elections. Because in many states, including Georgia, early voting is underway and there are huge numbers of people that are out there, which sort of refutes the whole Jim Crow on steroids, you know, voter suppression narrative that the Democrats use to try to stop voter ID and, and other things. But a lot of people are out there voting. People seem to really care. And there could be some factors that are driving this, Paul. I know that, you know, you're on the in with, with some of these polling companies and, and the Republican leadership. So why don't you share with our listeners where we stand? Because we see a lot on cable news about a re-energization of, of the right. Is that happening? Well, a couple things. Uh, first is, as, as you mentioned on the early voting, just the other uh, night, I believe it was last week, there was a debate between Stacey Abrams and uh, Senator or, and uh, Brian Kemp where Ms. Abrams said, voter suppression is alive and well in Georgia. And then just two days later, Georgia breaks their early voting record that they set in the 2020 election. So. If voter suppression is more people in Georgia turning out to vote than ever before, then I'll take it <laughs> because I don't understand. I mean, that narrative seems to be completely blown up. I mean, Georgia passed this law that that the left was saying was going to suppress votes. And it seems like the opposite has happened. It absolutely has. And, and it was a false narrative put forth by a terrified Democratic Party because when those loopholes closed in terms of no voter IDs and other things related to drop boxes or whatever. And by the way, I, I should warn you that YouTube also has election misinformation policies. So again, we didn't violate their guidelines last week, but we, we have to point out some of these things that they will always paint it as a racial issue. President Biden called it Jim Crow on steroids. Major League Baseball moved the All-Star game out of Atlanta. So a lot of the, these leftist institutions decried this, but you're absolutely right. Access has been expanded. It really has. You know, in, in Florida where, you know, election, where there's really good election integrity and security, I actually saw a mail-in ballot. I had a friend of mine ordered their mail-in ballot and I had it, they showed it to me so I could, I could see because they know that uh, I do this show. So um, wanted me to describe it. And it really is it was very easy to order. You can get it online. And then you look at it and it just has all kinds of good security uh, protocols in it. So for example, there's a barcode that's attached to your name and your driver's license. When they get the ballot in at the voting center, they can scan that. And then your face comes up along with your signature. Um, you sign the outside of the envelope that goes over 
the part of the envelope that sort of closes up. So you have to sign on both parts. So it shows like across that crease. So it shows that it, it hasn't been tampered with. And then you mail it in or you can drop it off um, at the local area. They, they give you an address on there that's manned all the time. And then it, the ballot itself is inside a secrecy sleeve, which goes inside the envelope. And I was really impressed because it, it is a good way to do mail-in voting that has really good security protocols on it. I mean, I guess you could get your, you know, I guess if you're with a friend, they could fill it out for you and then you can sign it. But that would be, you know, within your consent. There's like no way you could give the ballot to somebody else. And then you have to, that would then fill it for you. And then you have to actually provide contact information on the outside of the ballot so that if there's any signature irregularities um, or your signature does not match with your driver's license, that they'll call or email you to uh, discuss what the issue is. So really impressed by that mail-in ballot. I feel like all states should do that. They should. All of those things you describe. I mean, I often wondered why they had that that thing where you had to sign on the outside of the envelope across the, the crease, but it makes perfect sense. It's very simple. And yet, it eliminates many different ways that these organizations are basically taking somebody else's ballot and and using them. And another good thing about Florida and I think some of the other states is that after you send the ballot, you can go on the Department of Elections website and check and see if it arrived. And so you can see that your, your vote did arrive. And then you can go back later and check and see if it was counted. And these are important things, as we talked about last week, to restore people's faith in the process. Because we have, I, I saw on CNN where they mentioned the sheer number of election deniers. That's their buzzword for people who had common sense concerns about what happened. In- well, they love using the word deniers for everything. Climate yeah. deniers, COVID deniers, uh, you name it. It's just, they just put, you can put the word denier in front of everything and they make you out to be some crackpot conspiracy theorist. Yeah, and there was a huge number of people in this election that questioned what went down in 2020. But if we're being fair, I mean, Stacey Abrams is also an election denier as well. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in that race. She didn't help her chances this past week by saying that abortion was an economic issue because of inflation. People are trying to feed their families. You could just... That's one of the reasons why people want the, the right to abort their child is because of economics. And, and we actually tweeted that out. I mean, we saw that and we said this is coming from somebody that doesn't have children and doesn't understand the beauty of bringing a precious life into the universe. Just making it children transactional like that, I found to be very impersonal and, and inhumane. And I think, I think the voters of Georgia have seen that too. Well, in a, in a place like Georgia which has a tremendous number of you know, Southern Baptists and other religious denominations. It'll be interesting to see how that messaging played for her. I imagine, I would guess that if she has any sort of, I mean, with the, with the millions upon millions of money coming in from California and New York, desperate leftists trying to get that state, I imagine they've got a political consultant with, with two cents, uh, you know, or, or a, little bit, a little bit of a brain that's going to say, don't ever say that again. Without a doubt, I can't imagine that. I mean, she has not run a very good campaign. Speaking of that, let's get into some of the polling here because the reason we wanted to discuss this today, I actually thought maybe we should save it till next week, right before the election. 
But some major developments have happened across the polling world that I thought would be really important to discuss. I have not seen a swing over the course of two weeks towards one party. I can't even remember, maybe 2010, maybe 1994. But what's happening is absolutely astounding. And October is when you really do start to see numbers break for one party or the other over history. And things are really breaking toward the Republicans right now in a level of momentum that is is almost hard to to believe. So if you can, I mean, we went over this two weeks ago. So just thinking of some of the changes that have happened, we've now got, uh, according to most polls, we now have Fetterman and Oz tied in Pennsylvania, which was almost, I mean, unheard of. Just a few months ago, Fetterman was ahead by double-digit leads. I think a couple weeks ago when we were talking, Fetterman was still up by five or six points, and we were not even predicting that Oz would win in Pennsylvania. So this now looks like a tie, and given historic voting uh, polling errors in Pennsylvania, Real Clear Politics is actually predicting uh, an Oz win in Pennsylvania. I mean, it's, it's hard to even imagine. You've got Laxalt uh, now up uh, in Nevada uh, over Cortez Masto. Real quick on Fetterman. Yeah. Last week, President Biden, you know, who has been essentially told to stay away by most many Democratic candidates in both the, the House and the Senate races, he was with John Fetterman last week. Fetterman needs something, and he's betting that, you know, good old Scranton Joe will will help get him across the finish line. So Biden was giving a lot of attention to Fetterman. They were they were together shaking hands, yucking it up, and and the belief that Joe Biden can deliver Pennsylvania uh, because he he talks about his roots in Scranton and whatnot, but also the huge demographics in in Philadelphia that Fetterman is losing because of his racist past. He's hoping the president can get him across the finish line. He does, although it seems to be sending these people in the opposite direction. I mean, I think aligning with Joe Biden is exactly the opposite of what you want to do right now if you're a Democratic candidate, because uh, wherever he goes, it seems to hurt things even more. You go to North Carolina, where Bud versus Beasley, you know, that was one that was looking, it's been around a tie for for the entire election cycle. Now, all of a sudden, the latest Trafalgar poll has Bud plus four, and that's outside the margin of error. So she seems, I hadn't really been paying attention to that race. I know one of your homes is is in that state, so I know you. you I know you. <laughs> Wait, trapped. what state? What state don't I have a home in? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know I'm not Doctor Oz. Don't. <laughs> I know you. I know you're more familiar. Yeah, I know you're more familiar with North Carolina politics than I am. It's a little cabin that I rent out. It's not. You know, don't don't everybody get carried away. <laughs> but you track that state more than I do. I wasn't really paying attention last week. I saw Beasley following some things on Twitter. She seems kind of radical, Paul. Uh, she is. I mean, she uh, she's tried to walk away from it, but I mean, she's tried to to make a, mo- a moderate of herself. She's kind of separated herself from Biden, but make no mistake, she is radical. She's just sort of, you know, for the general election, she's trying to put herself in the middle. But I think Ted Budd, I think is going to comfortably win. So let's hope from your mouth to God's ears. Yeah, we've we've got a few more that I wanted to go over that are super interesting. Okay, so number one is in New York. The latest 
WNYT TV Survey USA poll now has Zeldin within six points of Hochul. If you can even imagine how close that is. And I'm not saying that Lee Zeldin's going to win in New York, but I'm also saying that it's now some, it could happen. I mean, if you look at the swing that New Jersey had in 2021, you didn't have, have that, you didn't have Murphy with a, his lead was way more than six points going into 2021 and he almost lost. I was just going to say that is your example. I mean, the New Jersey, the, which borders New York, a lot of leftists in that state, very solidly blue in the 2020 presidential election. They darn near lost it. And New York, even though Katie Hochul is an unelected and horrible candidate who has really not a lot of good policies that she can stand on, it's New York. I mean, the city itself is a huge blue enclave. But Zeldin has a lot going for him, including the fact that Hochul and some, you know New York City Mayor Eric Adams and many of the other Democratic politicians are partly to blame for the crime wave that has New Yorkers terrified to even take the subway to work. Yeah, completely. I mean, crime is playing a huge issue. And I'm actually, in a few minutes, we're going to get into the latest Harvard-Harris poll, which shows some of the uh, the issue tracking that can explain a lot of this. And we're, we'll get into that in a minute because that's super, super critical to why this is happening. So we've got that. Another surprising poll that we got out of Minnesota is uh, Waltz, the incumbent governor, now tied in a race with the Republican Jensen. This is one that I hadn't been following closely, but I had seen polls because you just assume Minnesota is going to go blue. And I've seen the uh, some polls as recently as a month or two ago, having Waltz up by high single digits, even double uh, uh, digits. And also on the attorney general side, everybody knows that Minnesota attorney general, Keith Ellison, defund the police, et cetera. The Jim Schultz, the Republican candidate, has now expanded his lead over Ellison. So Minnesota is moving. I mean, this is crazy. I can't even believe I'm seeing this. And then you go to Michigan, you've got a latest poll here from Mitchell Research showing the Wicked Witch of the West, Gretchen Whitmer, with only a two-point lead over Tudor Dixon. That's within the margin of error. So... I mean, I almost can't believe what I'm seeing wow. when I saw some of these poll poll numbers come out. I mean, it's it's just, I mean, how can we not talk about this? I've never seen a shift like this before. And yet you you look at these politicians and the policies that they have espoused and the damage that they have done, and you wonder how somebody like that ever could get elected in the first place. It's as if some of the factors that you're about to talk about with these issue polls have sort of shaken the cobwebs off and gotten people to wake up to truth. And that's what we need. Complete, otherwise known as misinformation and disinformation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. right. Although, I mean, <laughs> so, so since they're all the same thing. So what I, I, I want to, you know, the state I want to focus specifically on today is Georgia, because that's one where we're seeing some also some big swings, and that's obviously been the state that everybody's been focused on over the last few years. We saw what happened in 2020. So on the Senate side, we now have, uh, according to Landmark Communications poll uh, released a couple days ago, Warnock and Walker are tied. So that that has obviously 
gone from a pretty comfortable Warnock lead. You've seen the the oppo research on Walker. Every you know, it's drip, drip, drip. Every single day, people going after him. Uh, he's only been closing and tightening in the polls. It looks like the debate that they had the other day has helped Walker. From what I saw, Warnock did not go after uh, Walker very much. Walker had some great, great. He had a great performance in that debate. Most people said that that he won that on both sides of the aisle. I'm a little surprised by that, Paul, that he handled himself so well in that debate. Me too. Me too. I mean, it was not expected. I mean, Walker has done an excellent job, I think, preparing. I think he's really gotten focused, just like in his football days where you focus on what's right in front of you in the game and getting focused. He's really come along and done that for this election. And he has a real chance now. You know, we were saying two weeks ago that Arizona was going to be the state that that is the pickup that's going to get uh, Republicans control. But I mean, now every, I mean, it looks like they may, they could pick up two to four seats now in the Senate. So it's very possible. With the Walker Warnock thing, I mean, you have a, you have a sitting Senator who's, who's been there essentially for almost two years. Thank, thanks in part to Donald Trump coming down there after his loss. And, and we, we've talked about that, but, and then you have an outsider, a guy who's not a career politician, a guy who is, like you said, I mean, known for being a professional athlete, but also a Christian and somebody who, while flawed, perhaps as a human, as we all are, you, if you see those two guys standing up on a stage and you have a, you have a reverend who's defending the right to abortions, you know, up to nine months or whatever, I don't know. I honestly don't know Warnock's stance on what restrictions, if any, there should be, but we know what the Democratic platform is, right? If voters in Georgia care about such things as God and religion and things like that, they look at these two men. And I think you can see with Walker, or at least I, this is my belief, that you look into their heart and you see somebody who is fighting for for good. And he may not have the, the firmest grap, grasp on all the policy things, but when, you, when you're sending somebody to Washington you want to send people who have some values, you know, and I, and I think Walker comes across to me anyway, as genuine. And, and obviously some of these, you know, October surprise and some of the other things that the dirty tricks that, that parties always tend to pull in these types of elections haven't hurt him because I think people like him and they trust him. And what's really interesting about that poll too, and this is actually a different one. It's an Atlanta journal constitution poll is showing Walker now with a 6.3% lead among Hispanics in Georgia over Warnock. So, I mean, you look at that and you're seeing all of a sudden you've got that community breaking for Walker now. So, I mean, it's looking like he has the momentum, but let's remember Georgia, okay? They have a, there's a rule there where there's a runoff if nobody gets 50%. So it is very possible that at this point that uh, neither uh, candidate is going to get 50% and there will be a runoff because what we're- And when, when might that be? It will be December 6th would be the runoff because right now they're at 46% each and there's a libertarian candidate also. So if that holds, it's going to be a Walker-Warnock runoff. And I would have to think that most of the libertarian votes would break for for Walker and- you would have big turnout. So my my prediction there is you're going to have a Georgia runoff again. 
one would hope. And by the way, there is so much at stake. I think the Democrats at this point concede the fact that they're going to lose the House, but the Senate is so important for them. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi said, well, I think we're going to keep the House. I think I'm going to keep my job. Joe Biden said to to his base, listen, I need you to get me two more senators because they they don't think that they can, well, they know they can't rely on Manchin and Cinema to tear up the Senate rules. So I need two more. If you give me two more, and he was out on the stump this week talking about the first piece of legislation that we're going to pass with our Democratic Congress. Does he own them, by the way? He said, give me two more. Is that is he yeah, is yeah. that his, his personal possessions? He was, yeah, <laughs> I need two more. Well, yeah, I mean, essentially, I mean, in the, in the uh, party construct, right? And he said, if, the, if you do that, if you give me two more senators, the first piece of legislation we're going to pass is a national abortion rights bill, reproductive rights bill that allows basically that that mirrors Roe v. Wade. It'll go back to the old way, but it'll be across 50 states. So they they want to not only maintain their current 51-50 advantage, but they want to get it to 52 to 50 without the vice president. Doesn't look like, let's hope that they cannot do that, but it'll be interesting to see what happens on November 8th. We'll, let's, let's stipulate that the Georgia thing won't be decided. And what happens if it's looking like it's that is going to be the tiebreaker? Imagine how much money is going to pour into Georgia at that point and how desperate the Democrats are going to become because they, would, they potentially will have already lost the House and they want to keep the Senate. That Walker-Warnock race could be the deciding one. And if it's not the deciding one, does that hurt Warnock's chances or does that hurt Walker's chances? I don't know. I mean, I think that Walker is going to win here. I mean, I think he's going to win the runoff. I don't think that the sort of deciding vote in the Senate, I I just I just feel like the way the momentum is going, I think he has a really good shot. Because there's another thing. There's a, a House race in Georgia that's a toss-up that's been Democrat for about 30 years now. Mm-hmm. And it's the second district of Georgia. It's the southwest corner of the state. That includes Macon, Albany, Columbus, a couple of those places. It is a uh, 51% majority uh, black district. It's represented by Sanford Bishop, who is the 30-year incumbent. He's won comfortably by approximately 20 points each cycle. So very comfortable. He had one very close race in the the Republican wave in 2010, where I think he won by one one or two percent. But you've now have a a poll that just came out with uh, uh, him, uh, Sanford Bishop, in the lead only by three points against uh, challenger, Republican, Air Force veteran, and... uh, real estate developer, Chris West, uh, with a margin of error of 4.2%. So that is within the margin of error. So you've got, I mean, just to give you an idea of the way things are swinging, you've got a 20, a 30-year comfortable Democratic seat with the incumbent normally winning by 20 points, now within the margin of error. So whatever happens in that race, that just shows the way things are swinging in Georgia right now. Another race that I've kind of got my eye on is New Hampshire won. This is one that has been, you know, New Hampshire, live free or die, love the state. It's a, it's a beautiful place. Has been, you know, obviously with their, their status as, are they're the first, are they the first state that, that has a, 
a primary? I'm trying to remember. Well, Iowa caucus is first, but okay, they're the, but, yeah. they're second. So, but they're they the are first the, primary technically. Just they not. are the first primary, but it's yeah. not the first place. But, but um, they're they're big, right? And those voters are quite sophisticated. Um, New Hampshire one has gone back and forth between Republicans and Democrats historically in a place where they're more middle of the road. But since 2017, Chris Pappas of the Democratic Party has been the representative for New Hampshire's first district. And now he's running against Caroline Levitt, a 25-year-old former assistant press secretary for President Trump. And uh, she used to work for her family's small business. This is one that a lot of people are watching as well, because Levitt is very young, but she's got a lot of energy. She is knocking on doors every night. And just, you know, a few months ago, people probably thought that this was comfortably blue, but, but now it looks like it's in play. And there are, we talked about Rhode Island two, a couple shows ago. There are a lot of house districts that the Biden administration has brought down for the democratic party and, and given the Republicans a chance. I think we were talking red tsunami back before the Dobbs decision then it looked in doubt as to whether the, the Republicans could win both houses or even one, at least in my eyes. But now it seems like there's hope again for the Republicans to really uh, seize power. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the Dobbs decision, because when we first started talking polls, and that was in early September, I made an interesting uh, prediction based on some people that I had spoken to. And really was going, the election itself is going to hinge on what issue facing voters as the most important issue to them fills that number three slot. So we talked about inflation and economy being one and two. So I, we have the latest Harvard-Harris poll, which tracks these issues. So you've got price increases and inflation as the number one issue among voters, 37%. You've got economy and jobs as the number two at 29%. Now, a few months ago, back in September, you had, I believe it was education and abortion were the number three issue as a tie. And at that point, things were not really looking as good for the Republicans. You had maybe a 20-seat pickup for the Republicans. I mean, obviously, they were going to still win the House back, but not that big. Those numbers have now shifted. So number three now is immigration, 23%. And that could have very well been increased by raising attention with, you know, the flights to Martha's Vineyard, the busing, et cetera. Crime and drugs, now number four, 18%. Women's rights is now fifth at 17%. So you've got immigration and crime and drugs now above women's rights. So you've got inflation, economy and jobs, immigration, crime and drugs as the top four with uh, women's rights fifth. That alone is showing that those top four issues are all ones that are strong for, for the Republicans. So, um, you know, if I'm looking through tabs for kind of approval ratings, so you look at Biden's approval rating on these same issues, he's got a 39% approval rating on the economy. Um, he's got a 38% approval rating on immigration. So uh, he's got a 35% approval rating on uh, inflation. He's got a 39% approval rating on crime. So all of those numbers, he is extremely low 
as far as approval. So, you know, those top four issues are really showing things going towards Republicans. So, yeah, we've seen the break. The break has now happened. The momentum is with the Republicans. I think we could have a 30-plus seat pickup um, in the House, maybe even more. Uh, I think uh, there's still like 39 toss-ups. I think on the Senate side, we could see a plus two, maybe even a plus three pickup for the on the Senate. So I, I think we're going to have uh, both houses of Congress firmly in Republican control. And what's most important about picking up that Senate seat is it's, the Senate majority is the uh, judges, because that's going to essentially stop the confirmation of the left-wing activist judges. Um, and that's why the Senate is so important. And I, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about it right now. Well, uh, and this is, you know, Paul Runyon follows election mechanics and, and history and all these things a lot more than I do. But when, so when he says it, that, that is a very good sign. Uh, the reprioritization in the minds of voters on what's important is a very bad omen for the Democrats, certainly. One of the issues that may have been included in the education thing but was not, was not really mentioned in there but is one, another one that Republicans should seize on is the issue of child grooming. We've heard about it a little bit this year. You may not realize how pervasive it is. If you have, a, if you have young children, you're going to want to listen to the next segment because Democrats are trying to protect under the banner of inclusion the right for adults to groom your kids. And we're going to talk about that next on The Midnight Ride. Welcome back to the Midnight Ride. On to our final segment of the day. And this is one that Connor has been very, very passionate about. He has attended school board meetings over the years. He has a huge interest in protecting his children and other children from child grooming and the normalization of transgenderism in schools. And it's something that we had been talking about, we haven't actually spoken too much about it in previous episodes, uh, at least in the last few months. And parents are really making a, a comeback here and, and really making some noise saying, keep your hands off my kids. And, uh, you know, Connor, what are you seeing out there right now? Oh, I got to take a deep breath before I start in on this. Um, and I, I know we've got a certain amount of time allotted for this segment, but uh, yeah, I'm going to talk for a second. And this is an issue that is uh, fundamental and existential, I think, for kids. You know, you look at all those voting issues that you listed, inflation, unemployment, crime, all those things. Like the American economy is going to come back. You know, Joe Biden's only going to be a president for a maximum of about two more years. And that's a maximum. The, uh, the American economy always comes back. You can't get your child's innocence back. And it is under attack from multiple flanks. We saw in Virginia last year, when parents unite, they win. But I really have noticed, as I've attended the school board meetings, not a lot of people there with me, but you know, I'm on, sad to say, Twitter quite a bit, and I'm, I'm always on the internet seeking out information. Well, once, once Elon Musk owns Twitter, we shouldn't be sad about it anymore. No, apparently he's going to cut like three quarters of the staff, which will be a beautiful thing. But when I go out there, I, I'm seeing things in almost every state. Let me just prep the groundwork here by saying that in 
all 50 states, you have people who have been educated by, you know, the current academia, the current university system, and under the banner of diversity, equity, and inclusion are allowing things like drag queen story hour at public libraries, quote unquote, family friendly drag shows, library books in public libraries, but also in school libraries, high school, even middle school and elementary libraries, which depict graphic sexual acts between heterosexuals, but a lot of homosexual sex acts. These are books that are in high school and middle school libraries around the country. This came to the fore. And then, of course, you have the transgender social contagion, where up to a quarter now, one-fourth of young kids in high school today are identifying as LGBT plus, IA plus. And, and so they're not saying that they're gay per se, but they may say that they're non-binary or they're pansexual or demisexual. Or there's about 150 different denominations. And on top of that, we've seen a, ten, a minimum of a tenfold increase in child gender mutilation surgeries. Now, the left calls it gender-affirming care, okay? I call it gen- genital mutilation. Yeah, I mean, in, in the Middle East, we criticize you know, certain Muslims for basically cutting off parts of, of their young girl's genitalia because that is child abuse, right? But here in the United States, people are perfectly okay with giving a 15-year-old girl a double mastectomy. Even, well, a lot of cases, they're giving them drugs that are what they call puberty blockers, which can cause osteoporosis in young people and other things. These are the same things that you would give to sex offender to chemically castrate them. But there are a lot of things that are being done under the banner of diversity and inclusion that are causing children to be permanently sterilized. And, you know, they're doing this to minors, you know? So this is, this is a national problem. And it came to the fore this past week when Sarah Gonzalez of The Blaze showed a a video of a family-friendly drag event in Plano, Texas. I mean, we're talking about Texas here, God's country, right? And, and not Austin, Texas, but a suburb of Dallas where you had the most vile and disgusting display of a, a man dressed in drag singing a vile rap song with all sorts of, I, I can't even get into it, but, and there was, a, there was like a seven-year-old kid right behind this guy looking on in a state of confusion and disgust. But this is child abuse. And, and we're going to talk about this. But what's really telling is that the Democrats are defending these practices. And anybody who questions the books in the schools, the grooming of, of children in schools, and we've talked about the Florida bill that, thank goodness, the Florida legislature and Governor DeSantis passed, but if you're against that, what does that say about you? These drag shows, you know, a lot of people are just, they're silent to this problem and they think, oh, drag shows, they're cute, drag race, RuPaul, whatever. But you had Nancy Pelosi and AOC going on shows with drag people. Um, AOC called them patriots, these folks. Let's, let's be clear what, what drag shows are. It is basically gay men and it's a burlesque show. 
Yeah, it's a man pretending to be a woman doing sexually explicit or activities on, on stage with lyrics that are not appropriate for young children. Yeah, and listen, to each his own. If these guys want to go out and do this in their adult clubs and whatnot, that's fine. But um, I think this is summed up very well with our tweet of the week from John Gunther Jr., one of our followers, and we follow him. He's, he's an activist trying to protect children from this. He's at Utah State with an N on the end. And he says, very simply, why do drag queens want an audience of children? We're not saying, you know, don't ask why children need to see the drag queens, but ask yourself why drag queens want kids as an audience. It's because they're getting off on this, but they're also trying to raise the next generation. And this is being essentially applauded by the Democratic Party. Look, I don't, as we've said, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with how somebody lives their life. You know, if you're gay, if you want to be trans, I mean, go right ahead. That's that's your choice. But what's happening is it's almost like, okay, I'm going to live this way and I want everyone else to be like me also. So I'm going to go and try to get into the schools and get these kids to do. It's almost like a an alcoholic saying, come on, have a drink with me, right? Or Oh, that's a great, that's a great analogy, Paul. I mean, Think of, of of other instances in your life where you've seen people who are, I mean, I don't think we can say that the life of a transgender person or, or, I mean, because there's a lot of, gender dysphoria is a medical condition. It exists. There's no question about it. But for decades or centuries, it was looked at one way and treated one way. But now it's like, we need to help these kids transition and really, it's it's girls that are most at risk. In the young ages, it's boys. It's you have these parents who wanted a girl, and they kind of condition their kid to think that they're. I mean, you got kids that believe in the the, the Easter Bunny and and Santa Claus. It's not hard to to get them to get them to think that, right? I mean, if they pick up a a Barbie doll or they like the color pink, the wrong kind of parent can lead them down this road. But once you get into the teenage years, it's really a problem with young girls who are going through puberty, starting to experience those changes. I have two daughters, one of whom has gone through that. It's an awkward time for the for these young girls. And you go on TikTok and it's like, all of your problems will go away if you just come join this club. Because it, it's the one group in America, Paul, that you can't say anything bad about, right? I mean, it's the most protected class by the left. Yeah, it's like a third, yeah, it's become like this third rail that, you know, if you mention anything, you're going to get in all this trouble. And, you know, I don't, I, look, I, I have connections to the state of Michigan. I think everybody knows that I love Michigan football. I love Jim Harbaugh. Um, great school, great history. I, I, there's a town in Michigan called Dearborn. Um, it's where Ford is headquartered. It's uh, Henry Ford is from there. Um, he got his start. It's great, uh, great American town. Uh, in the last 20 or 30 years, it has become the number one Muslim community, Muslim American community in the United States. So it's got immigrants there from all over the Muslim world. I think Yemen is probably the, the biggest, the biggest population um, there. Um, I've actually driven through there on the way between Ann Arbor and Detroit. And, you know, there's mosques. You can actually, in many cases, hear a call to prayer. In some areas, there's Arabic writing. 
uh, on the stores. So, I mean, we're talking a real Muslim immigrant community in Dearborn. And one that votes Democratic, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's Rashida Tlaib's district. So, I mean, it, it votes, it votes very, very Democratic. But what we've seen in the last week or so is a huge rise up of parents from something that happened. And this was uh, Chris Rufo, I think, who anybody that thinks, you know, that sort of is in our sphere, follows him and knows who he is. Uh, he started tweeting about it. There was a book that the school district in, in Dearborn promoted, and it's called This Book is Gay. Um, it's in the library there in the, in the schools. Um, it was promoted, I guess, as part of their diversity commitment. And parents discovered this. On page 156, there's something that says how sex apps work. Uh, and it actually gives a, an entire step-by-step -step guide on how to use sex apps. It's number one, unload a tiny pic of yourself to the app. Two, the app works out your location. Three, the app tells you who the nearest homosexuals are. Four, you then chat to them. Five, because they are near, it's easy to meet up with them. And it's almost like the step-by-step -step guide of how to do that. Uh, they've even got... How, how, to, how to get raped by a child predator. Yeah, exactly. It's like a description on how to do that. It's crazy. Inside the book, there's instructions on how to do gay sex. It's like there's like a picture. There's a... Even Twitter was saying it's potentially sensitive content that they, you know, you had to hit the view button to do. And it gives descriptions on how to do it. We might, we, I don't even want to read it because we might get a... No, pl please don't. Yeah, please I won't don't. because we'll get a sensitive, I don't want to get... But just think, we can't read it. You and I can't read it on this podcast and it's being... Uh, promoted in the school district in, in Dearborn, Michigan. Well, remember, we talked about a few months ago in Clay County, Florida, a guy got up and started trying to, you know, he said, I'm going to read this book that's in my kid's school. And they they said, sir, sit down. You know, you, that's indecent. That's inappropriate. And he's like, well, yeah, but it's in, you've got it in my kid's school. If you think that this isn't happening, wherever you are, you know, all of our listeners in California probably know that it's happening. But if you think in in Texas or Mississippi or Nebraska or whatever, if you think that these places don't have these kind of adults that are trying to groom your kids, you're wrong. It's happening in your communities. And recently, Matt Walsh of the, of the Daily Wire. So if you care about this issue and you want to see how pervasive it is, let me let me tell you some folks to follow that are that are more focused on this. Christopher Rufo, Matt Walsh. Sarah Gonzalez, Andy No of the Post Millennial, and Libs of TikTok. If you follow those five accounts, you will see how pervasive this is. But getting back to Walsh for a second, he recently found out about a hospital in Tennessee where the Daily Wire is headquartered, uh, the Vanderbilt Medical Center that was performing these surgeries on kids, and basically, you know, stirred up some stuff and got them to stop, at least temporarily stop these procedures. What we're talking about is- Well, they were making, I mean, I saw that. They made about $40,000 per surgery. I mean, this is a big business for them. They were promoting it. Yeah, it wasn't It wasn't just that they were doing it, but they actually had video that had been posted on, on the web of somebody basically saying, look, why are we doing this? It's huge money, not only for the surgeries themselves, but you basically got 
customers who have to come in for their whole lives and, and get maintenance or whatever done. I mean, it's, it's, it's disgusting when you hear about the t- types of things that are going on. And it's no different in my eyes from the gender, you know, the genital mutilation that's done in places like Somalia or, you know, Morocco or, or wherever else. It, it's horrible. And they, California just passed a law that that's basically makes it a sanctuary state. We are getting to the point, we've seen it in, in communist Canada, but we're going to see it here in California and other places, where if, you, if your child says they want this and you don't agree, they're going to try to take your kids away. You think I'm kidding about this. Look at the law that Gavin Newsom just passed in California. And what we're talking about is basically saying that a child, a 15-year-old, a 16-year-old can consent to these procedures going on. They can't smoke cigarettes. They can't vote. They can't get a tattoo. They can't rent a car. They can't do any of these things. But we think it's okay for them to to sterilize themselves. Yeah, I mean, this is just. Ins- I mean, it's crazy town. I mean, to even to there, it's just they're destroying the family by doing this. And I think that's the goal. I mean, it's like a communist Marxist thing at the end of the day. And I, what I find it is interesting is. Going back to Dearborn, why is it that it's the Muslim parents leading the way here? In Rashida Tlaib's district, you know, this the Muslim cause in the United States has been a huge hallmark for the progressive movement. Muslim immigrants, remember the Muslim ban from Trump and that being fought. And now you're seeing Muslim immigrants fighting back uh, against this progressivism. Well, well, in Dearborn, you do have Muslims and Christians side by side, and that's that's a beautiful thing. There are Christians there that are fighting this, but you know, Christians and and Jews, the Democrats don't care as much about them as they do this demographic. And I think that's this thing that you're talking about, what's going on with the Muslims in Dearborn, gives us an opportunity. It, it gives us an opportunity because if sunlight is cast on this practice maybe we can get something done nationally. Well, and it also shows, too, why many of these immigrant communities, like the Hispanics breaking for Herschel Walker, um, why these communities across the country are shifting Republican. Because the Democrats have gone too far. And uh, as you said, there's a national bill that's gotten introduced in Congress that doesn't have much of a chance of passing right now, but I think is one that should be passed at some point. And uh, you were about to to mention that. Yeah, if they win. So uh, Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana and 33 other Republicans sponsored a, a bill called the Stop the Sexualization of Children Act. And it would allow suits from parents if federal funds were used to expose kids under the age of 10. This is one example. There are others who are trying to propose the criminalization of doing these sexual drag shows in front of young children. And there's also a case in front of the Fourth Circuit. The Fourth Circuit Court, there was a, the, the state of Arkansas tried to criminalize performing these surgeries on young children, which it absolutely should be illegal. If you're 18 and you want to undergo this, by all means, you have the right to do that. But children should not have the right or the ability to consent to this. They, they don't have the mental faculties, their brains don't fully develop till they're 25. But as we saw in Walsh's film, which everybody must see, What is a Woman? It shows one of these folks that that has regrets. And there is a huge number of people that have regrets about these things. It destroys their lives and their suicide rate skyrockets 
seven to 10 years after they undergo these procedures. It shows why children, I mean, that's why you have age, you know, 18 years old is when you become an adult because children really should not be making these decisions. There's so many social pressures and peer pressure and, and psychological things that just go beyond the chromosomal abnormalities or whatever that may impact sexual orientation or something that show that it's not the right time for uh, children to make that decision. And it should really be left to the parents. And it has no place with people that are not parents discussing these issues with children of any type of sexual nature. I don't know why any child under 10 should be having any kind of sex ed. I don't think it makes any sense. Wait until puberty. Yeah, and I don't trust... You teach my kids reading, writing, and arithmetic, and, and let me handle that. One other point, you made up a great point about the the minority voters and the demographics that have solidly been Democratic. The Democrats don't understand these voters. They basically woo them with, with free stuff, but they don't understand them, and partly because a lot of them are godless people. They don't believe in, in God, and a lot of these communities absolutely do. They're heavily Catholic, or they're devout Muslims and, and things like that, and they will reject this. And I think that we need to seize this as, as a conservative movement. And really, this is, to me, the top issue. So follow all those people I mentioned, Rufo, Walsh, No, Gonzalez, whatever. Get, get educated and get active. This, once these kids get infected with this ideology, it's over. Their innocence is gone and they're doomed to a life of misery. So we've got to nip it in the bud and call these people out into the open. By the way, in Dearborn, the other night there was a meeting and there was a white leftist up there lecturing the Muslims and saying, you guys are just like Hitler wanting to ban books. Banning books is okay if those books are poison, if those books have illegal you know, stuff in there. Well, and there's books appropriate for children and appropriate for adults. I mean, you're not, you just, it's not, I mean, it's, you can't expose children to everything under the sun. I mean, that book's not getting banned. It's just getting banned for kids. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, uh, we'll talk about this more in subsequent shows. Please uh, stay active. Please continue to give us five-star rating. Tell your friends, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Google Podcasts, Spotify, give us a five-star rating, like, and subscribe um, on YouTube. Hopefully this, this episode is left up there. But um, we're on the Midnight Ride podcast. And you can also send us a note at the Midnight Ride podcast at gmail.com. Paul, final thoughts? Vote. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midnight Ride podcast. We will see you next week. Please have a good one. Bye.